you ever wonder where it is, it's in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country, by golly. And uh, we got a little rain. Uh, we'll cover that more at the bottom of the hour. Uh, the grass and the pastures are beginning to look green. Thank you, goodness. Thank you, goodness. And uh, we, of course, are in the Melvin Law Studio, great supporter of the show. Melvin Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, and we're protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention, locally owned. And our new uh, sign-on uh, sponsor is Allstate Insurance, Julie Docasio, local lady who's been here, born and raised, a great uh, supporter of the show, as well as all the others you will see as we scroll along through the show and at the bottom of the hour. Uh, we have been bringing a series of, I realized this and looking back at one, who our guests have been over a period of time here, the last uh, maybe month or so. Uh, it seems we've been uh, bringing a guest now and then from the medical community. And there's a reason for that. The medical community has been impacted, let's shall we say, by several factors uh, that have not been all that good, I'm beginning to learn, for the medical community. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation the other day with uh, somebody from one of the D.C. think tanks who talked about the uh, problem with um, corporations taking over medical practices and who suffers from that, of course, is the patient and the doctor. Uh, I'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Friday, we're going to have somebody from another think tank talking about uh, the medical world because it has changed quite a bit from the days, oh, quite a bit, of course, from the old days when I was about 20 years old and we were up in the mountains in Ozarks and you could take the family doctor up a sack of potatoes and uh, that would be your payment and he would look after you and uh, make sure you didn't have this, that, one thing and another and uh, carry on and now we've got the government involved. Today, I'm bringing you a special guest, a special friend of mine whom I've known for a long time, who is in practice here in our community for 40 years as a neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. Stephen A. Reed. He has now retired, and yet his mind has not retired. And I'll say this right to you now. He's got a first-rate mind, of course, and he works on minds as a neurosurgeon, among other things. You would hope the two went together. Uh, but this mind is still thinking about what's going on in the medical practice. And uh, from time to time, we've discussed these issues. So we're going to share them with you today on the Ward Scott Files. I've got the chat line open. If you have any conversations that are on your mind that you want to ask somebody about the medical uh, profession, uh, Dr. Reed is certainly one who can uh, talk about it with you. You'll probably hear me call him Steve because he's a friend, but he is Dr. Reed. And um, he's uh, going to talk with us about a lot of things today. I'm going to get out of the way, really, and let him uh, begin his own uh, conversation with you as to what is bringing him uh, uh, occupying his mind now as he uh, is retired, which, as they say, is not a mind that's idle. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I don't know where you'd like to start, but uh, one of the things that you told me in conversation which is alarming to all of us who are lay people, is the shortage of doctors. I don't know if it's a convenient place for you to start. Uh, you could probably start anywhere and work outward, backward, forward, whatever. So that's what stuck in my mind to start with, Steve. <clears throat> well, thank you very much, Ward. Thanks for having me back on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, I'm afraid that I've got some bad news for a lot of your uh, viewers and listeners, and that is that 
we're going to be very soon facing a very, very serious shortage of physicians in our country and especially our state. Uh, there are a variety of reasons for this. It's been made worse by the whole COVID fiasco or the COVID kabuki as we've recently passed through. Um, I'd like to uh, proceed in a conversational fashion with you if, you, if we can here and, and just uh, answer your questions and uh, try to point out uh, my perspectives then. So if you could kind of guide me through this, I'll be happy to, to follow it that way. Well, your title of the article you've gave me is Train Wreck and Slow Mo, Doctor Scarcity and Suicides Post-Pandemic. Uh, suicides is rather a dramatic word, of course. And um, has that been characteristic of the medical profession or has that peaked or spiked? Uh, it has been a problem for the medical profession for years, and it's recently uh, worsened. Uh, Currently, the profession that has the highest suicide rate is actually uh, marine engineers, the guys that work on the oil rigs. But behind them are doctors. And the suicide rate for doctors is twice that of the general population. So if you picture yourself uh, going into any random exam room in the country with a doctor and a patient, the doctor that's sitting in that room has twice the risk of committing suicide as does the patient. So uh, the suicide rate for doctors is higher than active duty, active duty military, higher than veterans, uh, and higher even than prisoners. Uh, it, it's an extremely bad problem. We lose uh, over 400 doctors a year to suicide in this country, and that was prior to the COVID uh, fiasco, uh, and it's probably much worse now. And we'll get into explaining some of those reasons uh, in the course of our, our talk today. But, well, uh, along, yes. with the, uh, along with the thing of doctors committed suicide, it seemed to me locally, of course, you know, I know a lot of the doctors, same ones you know, more and more of them are retiring, really at the peak of their wisdom. Uh, what's that about, Steve? <clears throat> well, there have been a lot of changes over the last uh, 50 years in the practice of medicine, and uh, they've uh, really kind of crescendoed, uh, during the last decade. Uh, there have been, there's been a tremendous shift from, uh, private ownership of physician practices, uh, by physicians into, uh, purchases, uh, by private equity, by hospital corporations, uh, by other corporations. You know, some of the large big, big box stores are hiring doctors now, uh, uh, Pharmaceutical companies, drug stores are hiring doctors. Uh, so the autonomy that doctors used to have uh, has eroded tremendously. Uh, so uh, that's one factor is, is essentially a loss of control of the entire field. Uh, a second major factor has been the uh, electronic health record. And you probably experienced this. If you go to visit your doctor, you'll notice that he's maybe looking directly at you uh, two or three minutes out of a 10-minute visit, if you're lucky. The rest of the time, he's looking at a computer screen and typing things in. Uh, this is not something the doctors wanted. This is something that has been forced upon them by bureaucrats uh, and uh, insurance companies, etc. The doctors have had their primary role to become one of data entry 
rather than patient interactions. Uh, so uh, a lot of people don't understand that uh, typically doctors in hospitals will spend more than six hours a day during their shift just on the computer. There have been careful studies of this. And uh, so out of their workday, at least six hours is spent just on the computer. So that's a lot of time uh, dealing with a computer rather than dealing with a human being. And that's not why people went into to medicine. They didn't start medical school because they wanted to do data entry. So that that is kind of forcing them in, into a different position. And then, you know, there are tremendous economic forces at work. The uh, medical liability situations with multiple lawsuits occurring, uh, the risk that any individual patient encounter can turn into a lawsuit is like a sort of Damocles hanging over their heads all of the time. So, so that doesn't help any. Uh, so th- there are just, uh, uh, and the, the, the demands of time are, are just unbelievable. Uh, to, uh, there have been studies that have looked at uh, for family practice doctors, if they were to meet all of the guidelines that are recommended to take care of their patients, they'd have to be working close to 27 hours per day, uh, which obviously is impossible. Add to that, uh, to keep up with the medical literature just in family practice would require close to, close to 29 hours per day, per weekday. Uh, and the volume of medical information doubles about every 73 days. So all of these things kind of add up to put doctors in an impossible position where the, the specific spelled out guidelines have, specific, have requirements that they're expected to meet that are literally impossible to me because there isn't enough time. You know, you just explained something to me because I remember uh, one of my uh, specialists coming in to see me, bringing with him a a non-medical personnel who had a computer and sat in the corner of the room, didn't speak, didn't interact, and recorded everything we said into the computer. And I guess that freed up the doctor. But it That's was one of the solutions. A, They're a called a medical scribe. What is it? Explain that to us. Uh, well, uh, a, a medical scribe does free up the doctor. So if somebody else is typing the information in, uh, so that, that is a help. Uh, of course, it's also another practice expense. Uh, right. It's uh, <clears throat> so, so that's uh, something that uh, it didn't used to be necessary, but now it, it has become necessary. So they're called medical scribes and they come in, of course, you know, somebody's got to pay for it. It's ultimately the patient, of course, I guess, billed through insurance or whatnot. Um, Got a question here. um, Observer of doctors uh, says that the VA, most of the doctors are from India or Somalia. Is this going to be the case from the future? Uh, It could very likely be a solution to our physician shortage. Uh, our medical schools and residency programs simply are not turning out enough doctors, so they have to come from somewhere. Uh, so foreign medical graduates are uh, becoming a larger sector of our physician population. Uh, now, I, I'm not sure about the regulations at the VA because they can exempt themselves from other regulations, uh, but uh, the doctors that you encounter in the community who are foreign medical graduates uh, still have to pass the appropriate uh, licensing examinations and board examinations. So 
it, it shouldn't be too much of a concern if they have a strange name or, or uh, a funny accent. Uh, they're probably still going to be a good doctor for you. So the doctors you see in the public, not uh, uh, the VA necessarily, and although we're not casting aspersions on them, uh, are going through the same arduous certifications that our homegrown, so to speak, doctors are. That's correct. Which we're just not producing enough of. You know, long ago, one of my friends who was a physician said, you know, and this is a rather cynical comment, but it may have a lot of truth to it. The medical schools kept the doctor enrollment in the class deliberately low so that there'd be more doctors and more money for doctors on the other end. Now, this would have been in the 60s and the 70s. They, these guys told me this because I had a, buddies that were becoming doctors or entering the medical school. Now, ironically, they're at the end of their career. But um, they said that there was an arbitrary limitation placed. They could have had a lot more people in the schools than they had. You think there's any truth to that? I uh, really don't know what the policies were that long ago, uh, but I, uh, I I do know that there are certain specialties that you know deliberate, deliberately limit the number of residency slots that are available for training. Uh, they usually have statistics to justify that. Uh, they, they seem to understand what are the optimal physician to patient relationships within communities, you know, uh, with regard to the different specialties. Uh, however, you know, anytime you have, uh, a external break or a governor on a system like that, that is imposed through the force of government, uh, it means somebody's probably lobbied for it and made it that way. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other industries that, uh, limit the entry of competition through the capture of government regulations. There, 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 I'm not saying there isn't such a thing in, in medicine, uh, but, uh, I think it would be hard to prove that. Well, with Dr. Stephen A. Reed here, retired neurosurgeon from our community who was in practice for 40 years. Just using your own 40 years, uh, are there any kind of um, um, benchmarks that occur now as you look back that were significant in the way you saw the trends going? Well, I started out as a, uh, a ward clerk so uh, when I was in high school, so uh, <laughs> in a small hospital. So I've kind of seen the uh, evolution of medicine over, over quite a longer period than, than 40 years. And, and I think that Two major events that probably uh, impacted medicine more than any other uh, were the uh, creation of Medicare and Obamacare. And I believe that both of those uh, ultimately uh, were negative uh, for medicine. Uh, re regarding Medicare, um, there's a concept called monopsony, which is the polar opposite of a monopoly. And the idea is that in, in a monopoly, you've got one seller of a particular uh, product or service, uh, and you've got uh, a consumption base. And because there's only one seller, the seller can set the price. A monopsony is the opposite of that. You've got one buyer. So uh, if you've only got one buyer of, of goods or services, the, the buyer sets the price. And so the discussions of having a, uh, a single payer medical system uh, seem to ignore this, that uh, if you have a single buyer setting the price, 
the, the market can't perform its main function. The, 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 the main function of a free market is price discovery. So in a free market system, uh, the excellent rise to the top, the quality rise to the top, the efficient rise to the top. And, you know, the consumers will make the decisions based on their local information. Nobody knows about what you need better than you. And nobody knows what you can afford better than you. So uh, you make the best decision you can to optimize your life with your purchases. Uh, when someone else comes in and sets the price now, it has to become a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. And the person setting the price does not have access to that information that you have. The person setting the price doesn't know what your income is, doesn't know what your alternatives are. And if you're having one person set the price, then there's really little incentive for the people offering the goods or service to optimize their delivery. You know, they, they're going to get paid the same anyway, you know, so why bother becoming excellent? And so uh, these were the impacts primarily of, of Medicare. It served as a price setting mechanism. Of course, we had other insurance companies out there. We have other alternatives, but they all index their payment systems to Medicare. So we have central price fixing of healthcare, and we've all seen what's happened with that over the course of, of the years. Uh, then came along Obamacare, uh, which was additionally onerous uh, with its demand for the electronic health record. And uh, the electronic health records we have today, for the most part, owe their DNA to accounting software. They, they started out as essentially big spreadsheets, you know, that were designed primarily for the accounting department to make sure that the bill gets paid. It was only only adding on the little modules for the uh, clinical data, et cetera, for for the doctors to use. And those quickly degraded because under the various quality control initiatives of uh, Obamacare, uh, you got paid based on how many boxes got checked. And so a lot of the medical records became essentially uh, fictional tomes. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, a lot of times when I go to the emergency room uh, to see a, a patient with a car accident, head injury, or uh, who presented with a sudden deterioration of a brain tumor, I'd look at the electronic medical record and I'd see that the history had been cut and pasted, you know, uh, multiple, multiple times going back years and years sometimes. Uh, and I'd see that the physical exams all the boxes had been checked, you know, over the course of what must have been maybe a 15 minute exam. It would have taken uh, three or four hours to actually do a thorough exam to click all those boxes, you know, without making it up. So uh, the bottom line was I was presented with information that I couldn't really trust in terms of its reliability and its accuracy. And so, and this is just one doctor in one situation. So you multiply that throughout the country. You have to wonder how accurate any of these medical records are. Uh, in the good old days, part of the doctor's job was to distill the information down, start out with this vast block of information, trim away that that is not relevant to why the patient's there and needs to be treated, and uh, provide a summary, you know, as to uh, what the patient uh, presented with, with their complaints, what you found in terms of objective data, 
how you assessed it and what your plan is. It was very simple. Typically, you know, one page would suffice uh, for uh, most medical visits. And, and now if you were to print out the electronic medical record of a specific visit, you know, it may go on for 20 or 30 pages. Uh, so uh, this is kind of information overflow, uh, inundation. You know, it, it's introducing inefficiencies in the system. Uh, so uh, I'd say that those those two issues, Obamacare and Medicare, uh, really steered the control of medicine away from doctors and into the hands of bureaucrats and politicians. Well, it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, there was an attempt to overturn Obama, Obamacare and somehow, some way, you know, that um, became a, I can't remember now what the Supreme Court used as a rationale, but it didn't seem to pass a smell test. But, uh, you know, it got by and uh, there it is. We're, we've got it. It's um, It was the determination that it was a tax. Is that, that what was it was? I remember now, yeah. Determination that it was a tax. Yeah, that, and therefore, it, you know. It was, it, was, it, was sold as, it was sold as this is not a tax. And in fact, in the, in the act, it said this is not a tax. But uh, in order to allow it to uh, persist, uh, the Supreme Court kind of deferred to uh, the executive branch and, and the legislative branch and kind of stretched it to say, OK, well, you, you know, if we say if we say this is, is a tax, we can go ahead and implement it the way you guys want to implement it. So we're just going to go ahead and say that. Why well, it might be different under today's Supreme Court, that'd be an interesting conjecture, but I don't think that's going to come up again. That's sad. Uh, talking with Dr. Stephen A. Reed, retired uh, neurosurgeon from our community, 40 years of experience. Any questions you got? I'm looking here at the chat line as we speak. Uh, bedside manner. Here's somebody bemoaning the loss of bedside manner. Um, I don't know what to say about that, Steve. It's um, certainly in the minds of the patient, it's extremely important. In the minds of the doctor, it might not be. What's important is that the doctor knows the science of the situation. And how do you close that gap? Well, uh, there's a saying that the patient really doesn't care what you know. The patient wants to know that you care. And gotcha. uh, that's uh, one of the little elements of the art of medicine that seems to have uh, been kind of swept away or uh, eclipsed uh, by the demands for this excessive documentation and these ridiculous demands on the doctor's time. Uh, obviously, it takes time to chat with the patient, to get to know them, uh, et cetera. Uh, well, here's an example from, from my own practice. Uh, before the uh, requirements for the electronic medical record, uh, when I kept paper charts, uh, I could write little notes on the cover of the chart, things like uh, ask about the patient's Appalachian vacation, you know, because the previous <laughs> visit told me about that, or, you know, ask about, you know, their, their grandson in, in Little League, you know. So I, I would make little notes uh, so that I could – uh, relate specifically, you know, personally, uh, to the patient. And, you know, there's, there's no room for that in the electronic medical record. That's, uh, you know, if, if there were a, a case that came to any kind of litigation, you know, the entire record is subpoenaed and, you know, there'd be all these questions. What are these little notes in the margins here? You know, so, uh, that, that, that's one thing. So really it's a combination of the, uh, 
uh, incredible demands on the doctor's time and the limitations on the way the doctor can store uh, the information that, that relates to the patient. Well, that's very interesting that um, the fact that the computer didn't like to gobble that kind of information and it could come back to haunt you if somebody got into the legal world with it. Um, what does it cost to be insured? The doctor pays for that out of his pocket? Uh, well, if the doctor is uh, running their own practice or owns their own practice, yes, they, they're paying for it out of their pocket. And it's uh, usually the, the largest single expense that the doctor has uh, on, on their, their budget, you know, for, for running their business. And, you know, a, a lot of people out there may, who are going to private doctors who are self-employed doctors may not realize that, uh, there's a tremendous overhead cost to, to running a, a medical office. You know, uh, first of all, uh, there's the rent on the building, you know, uh, paying off any necessary equipment and supplies. You've got the medical liability insurance. You've, you've got, the uh, employees' salaries, uh, you have got uh, workers' compensation insurance, you've got taxes, uh, you've got continuing medical education expenses, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so there, there are all these fixed expenses that uh, all have to be paid before the doctor gets a single cent to take home for, for the doctor's salary. So at, at the end of the day, the doctor's take-home pay is usually a very, very small fraction of their overall operating expenses. Uh, so uh, that's uh, – does that point towards your question? or? Uh, well, it seems to me explain why so many more doctors belong to groups. It, it kind of became time to circle the wagons because, uh, you know, by joining a, a group practice, uh, the doctor – can uh, can save uh, those headaches of having to manage that. But uh, studies that have looked at uh, what the doctors take home with group practices or hospital employment uh, compared uh, to, uh, you know, the overall amount that they generate for their businesses, it's about 9%. So uh, if, if a doctor works for a, a hospital, uh, the hospital is keeping 91% of the work product of that doctor, what the doctor generates, the doctor gets to take home about 9%. Calling Dr. Stephen A. Reed, we're coming up on the bottom of the hour break. I think when we get back, we'll probably go into the uh, conversation about COVID and how that's contributed to post-pandemic suicide and scarcity of doctors. Uh, COVID is probably one of the most controversial issues I've heard the medical community talk about. And uh, everybody has been affected by that one way or the other. And it seems really from the layman's point of view, uh, you were damned if you did and damned if you didn't. And there was really a lot of politicalization of the issue. Uh, I don't have any idea uh, how to address it uh, other than to get more opinions. And everybody seems to have one. And it's a mystery. And I don't know how long it will ultimately take to sort it all out. Um because it was done so rapidly and so hypersensitively, if that's the way the word, the proper word for it. I don't know if that's the proper word for it, urgently. And um, I don't know. I was around for the polio vaccine, and I do know, a boy, we welcomed it. I remember my mother telling me I was petrified of the iron lung, and uh, we would go everywhere as kids, and 
in the stores. And there would be an hour long little model for you to drop money into to help research for polio vaccines. And it was scary. I mean, the only thing that was sticking out of the iron lung was your head. Um, and there were a lot of people getting it. And nobody understood how or why or where. And uh, one day my mother said, you raise a great day. I think it was when I was 12 years old. I can't remember exactly the soft vaccine. But I'm pretty sure it was in elementary school probably. And she said, when you go to school today, all you kids are getting a vaccination. And polio, for the most part, of course, we know now it's come back and particularly in some countries and whatnot, but it just vanished. I mean, it was it was gone. And uh, I can't remember whether it was controversy about it or not. I just know that, buddy, you didn't want to escape getting that vaccine because uh, you didn't want to wind up in the iron lung. And a lot of the same thing went on with COVID. Uh, I had friends die of it rather all of a sudden. Uh, wow. And and, um, you know, you wonder where did that come from. And and and, and it wasn't pretty. It was uh, affected the respiratory system. Uh, I don't want to get into who they are because some of them are our neighbors and friends here in the community. So uh, we'll have a discussion about that. And if you have questions about it, uh, toss them in here to the chat line and we'll try to uh, bring it up and address them. Uh, we're going to take the bottom of our weather break right now in the Ward Scott Files. We're talking with Dr. Stephen A. Reed, retired with 40 years of experience in the medical business. Be right back in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Uh, Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. 
Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Welcome back to the Ward Scott Files. We're going to do Ward's weather report right now. Compliments of Lewis Oil. Yes, fossil fuel. Boy, don't cringe. I'm all for fossil fuel. Chevron stations. Uh, Wendell Lewis and Lewis Oil supports our weather show here now. It's 71 degrees as i looking at the computer. Uh, going to go up to 82. I tell you, we had a cold front come through yesterday. I went out on the porch and by golly, it was cooler. That's amazing. Climate change, right? Um Supposed to get a little rain in our area today. You never know. Uh, it's kind of spotty. Um, but in the, in the news, in the big roundup of the uh, weather news, uh, you know, we've got this whole, uh, I guess it's from people who don't live here. Sharks sharks bite Florida swimmer. You know, come on. I mean, that's Florida, right? I mean, what do you think is going to happen if you go out there around sharks or alligators, you jump in a pond with alligators? I think the most interesting Thing and uh, as probably should have been kept more quiet is the Florida beach that has been praised as the best beach in the United States is St. George Island State Park in Florida. I'll tell you what, if you haven't been there, don't tell a lot of people about it because it's remote. It's beautiful. The sand is described as sugary and it's uh, one of the, what's well, the top of the best uh, beaches in the United States. It's in the panhandle and it's uh Always on the list of the best places to go. So uh, keep that a secret. But if you want to go to a nice place to get away from the, it's not Fort Lauderdale, nor should it be. It's not Daytona Beach. It's up in the Panhandle, and it's a wonderful, quiet, idyllic kind of place. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Stephen A. Reed today uh, on medical issues. And I don't suppose we'll ever, ever get through talking about medical issues. As I said at the top of the hour, we've had several guests on. We'll have another guest on Friday from another think tank talking about uh, some of the very same issues we're talking here. There's a lot of thinking going on and talking and discussion about what to safeguard ourselves against. One, of course, is the probably the theme you picked up as you heard Dr. Reed and I talking, the eroding rapport between the patient and the doctor and more and more ironically expense involved in that. It's enough to make you crawl under your bed at night and kind of shiver if you're getting older, such as many of us are, about what kind of medical care will we be getting. And um, as young people, you need to sort of keep an eye on this because you may not think you need it now, as I did when I was young. I thought I was immortal. Who doesn't? And all of a sudden, the world crashes in on you and you suddenly realize you should have been keeping a good eye on yourself and rapport with people for quite a while. Uh, we are, uh, of course, going to discuss COVID now, which is um, one of the most controversial things that's come along. Many of us believe it's what got Biden elected uh, because of Zuckerbucks here locally, as you've been following our stories, $700,000 of Zuckerbucks dumped into the supervisor of elections office for absentee ballots, which are not even accountable. I mean, you can't. It's the most porous um, place you can go to get a vote. And yet it proliferated the use of them under the name of COVID. And it got, you know, Uncle Sleepy Joe into the White House, most people think. Without that, it would have been a tremendously different uh, kind of movement that was going on, but it came right at 
a critical time. And, uh, and we're going to talk about this uh, with Dr. Reed because he's been watching this and uh, everybody has an opinion about this stuff. And very few of us have any answers. I remember talking to one of my doctor friends who shall remain unnamed. And he very candidly said, Ward, nobody knows a thing about COVID. And probably still don't. I don't know where it started, how it started, who put the trip on us, the whole bit. Steve, take it away, brother. Thank you, Ward. Uh, well, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about how opinions polarize and uh, why that is a problem that almost is insoluble. Uh, imagine any kind of polarizing issue. Uh, make it gun control, abortion, uh, vaccines. Uh, if you have a, a group of people, uh, they're, they're going to have opinions. There are going to be a lot of people in the middle that really don't have much of an opinion. Then you're going to have people on either end that uh, feel strongly one way or the other. So you would think, most people would think, and I used to think, that as more information became available, that the groups that are out on the tails that are the most, most polarized are exposed to the same information, and that as information accumulates, that there would be kind of a move towards the center in a compromise. The more we know, the, the more clear the big picture should become. Sadly, that's not the way human beings process information. What actually happens as this cascade of new information falls onto the population, the poles move further apart, and there are fewer in the middle. And the reasons for that have to do with cognitive biases. People at either end exposed to information that is opposed to their preconceptions of the issue reject the information that doesn't fit with their picture. So what happens then is you've got all this information raining down, but we're only going to look at this information because all this information is obviously wrong because it doesn't agree with what I already believe. And so you get this movement apart and uh, this is a serious issue. You know, it's a, it's a social issue that is, is going to be a, a difficult one to solve. And, and we're seeing it through all kinds of politics. And, and uh, one of the things that we're seeing it with now is, is, is COVID. Uh, so just that, that is an introduction to it. Uh, now, uh, personally, uh, I did not get the vaccine. Uh, no one in my family got it. Uh, and you, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to understand that uh, this was uh, something that was introduced with, with very little human experience and absolutely no long-term information as to potential complications or side effects. So uh, that alone was uh, enough for me to say, okay, uh, let's just sit back and, and see how this stuff works. And, uh, you know, the an initial uh, wave of, of the COVID uh, was, was, was bad. There's no question about that. Uh, and there is some evidence that perhaps the vaccine helped to prevent uh, deaths uh, in, in very ill patients uh, early on. So that, uh, that is, is possible. Uh, but there were just so many 
games that were played with the data that made it even more suspicious. Uh, for example, uh, all of the data that was comparing the outcomes of the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated defined vaccinated as beginning uh, two or three weeks after the injection. So if a person uh, had an injection and they had a serious complication during the first week, they were classified as unvaccinated. So that's that's playing games with the numbers. So that's kind of suspicious, you know. Uh, then uh, as the situation evolved, uh, the social pressure, uh, the censorship uh, became really onerous. It was obvious that there was uh, a tremendous effort to keep any opposition, any skepticism under wraps. You know, the, if you said something to question the, the narrative, uh, you were ostracized. And uh, th- this was the case with doctors. You know, if, if a doctor uh, questioned the efficacy of the vaccine or the program or of lockdowns, that doctor risked losing their job or even risked losing their license. Uh, this is very serious. You know, a, a person who goes through, through medical school and a residency program and establishes a practice, you know, has a tremendous investment of, of, of time and effort. And to be honest with you, uh, once a doctor is kind of crystallized into being a doctor, uh, there's not much else he's going to be able to do, you know, with a sudden career change. So it's, it's a tr- the, the, the potential uh, threat of a loss of licensure. Uh, is, uh, about the worst thing you could, could say to a doctor. You know, if you, if you, if you don't go along, if you don't get along with us on this, uh, you're out. And, and in many cases, that means out on the street. So, uh, that was a, a, a serious issue with this. Uh, so, uh, how did doctors respond? Well, a lot of them retired early. We, we lost a lot of doctors during this period. They said, Okay, that, that's it. Uh, I've practiced long enough. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do this. A lot of them were told, "You get your vaccine, or uh, you can't work here anymore." A lot of them said, "Okay, that, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm pretty close to retiring." Uh, a lot of people don't know that most that, that practicing doctors now, uh, more than half of practicing doctors are 55 or older, and so uh, many of them's only option in a situation like that is to just say no. And uh, they executed that option. Then there are the issues that are, are what we're learning. You know, over time, when a new treatment or medication comes out, uh, there are usual phases that are, are very predictable. Uh, initially, there are the uh, early adopters and the people who are very enthusiastic about whatever the treatment or the medication is. And they get out and they kind of proselytize and they say, you know, this is really good stuff. This is one of the best things that's come along. Uh, We really need to do this. And they become champions for whatever the treatment or medication happens to be. And, uh, you know, not unexpectedly, many times uh, they uh, are rewarded by the people who profit from selling the treatment or or, or the medication. So it's uh, a, a a good gig for them. And most of them are true believers. They, they, they really are committed and, and believe uh, 
that they're doing the right thing by promoting it. And then there's usually a, a, an early wave of very positive um, academic papers and reports regarding whatever the uh, the treatment is. It could be surgery. It could be a device. It could be medications. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's kind of a bandwagon and people get on it and they, they say, yeah, this is really good, you know, and then you know, I tried it. This is great. Look at what it did for my patients, et cetera. Uh, and then this is... Uh, followed by a period where more doctors adopt it. You know, they, they look at the literature, they, they've got reasons to believe uh, logically that, you know, this might be a good thing to do. But then as, as experience accrues, you know, almost everything uh, has potential side effects or downsides. Uh, one of the great uh, wisdoms of the ancient Greeks where they had this word pharmacos and uh, you can look this up, but uh, the, the word pharmakos in Asian Greeks uh, means remedy. It means poison and it means human sacrificial victim. So I think it's just wonderful that the Greeks had the wisdom to put all of those concepts you know, encapsulated in, in one word. So after more experience uh, occurs with whatever the new treatment happens to be, we begin to see the side effects, the downsides, et cetera. And, uh, you know, uh, those were unknown at the beginning. And uh, as time goes by, obviously, uh, the, the delayed side effects become more uh, visible. And uh, then uh, they can be used to uh, modify treatment. So just about every drug you come across it follows that kind of history. Uh, some of them settle into, okay, you know, we, okay, this is a good drug. It's, it's good for this, but, you know, we probably shouldn't use it for everybody because it's got these potential side effects. And, uh, I think that, you know, the COVID vaccines are on that trajectory. Uh, it's, it's, it's very clear now that they do have, uh, very serious, uh, and even deadly, uh, potential side effects that are, not really that uncommon. Um, and we really do not know what the long-term side effects are. We've only got three years of experience. And so we really don't know what the effects may be on, you know, developmental uh, milestones in children, uh, whether there could be any kind of long-term effects uh, r- related to the vaccine itself, uh, long-term toxicity. Uh, back to the polio vaccine. A, a very interesting aspect of that is some of the batches of polio vaccine were contaminated with a virus called SV40. And SV40 is a virus that is known to cause brain tumors in monkeys. Well, it turns out that one of the most common brain tumors that human beings get, uh, glioblastoma, often expresses the SV40 virus. And this, these are tumors that are occurring in a, a population that uh, was vaccinated with a vaccine that contained SV40 virus. So that may be where it came from. But we didn't realize this, you know, for 40 or 50 years. So uh, the, uh, we don't know what the long-term side effects are going to be uh, from uh, the COVID vaccines or the M- mRNA vaccines. Uh, what we do know is that 
there are going to be doctors, and there have been doctors who have been struck with the realization that I made a recommendation to this patient who then developed myocarditis and died. There are doctors out there that are faced with that burden. And if they happen to be doctors that also were on the edge of burnout or suicidal ideation, that could be the straw that broke the camel's back. So this this has a, a, a terrible impact, you know, on a population of people who already have a very high suicide rate. A number of them are going to be burdened with intolerable guilt once they realize, you know, what they may have done. Myocarditis would be inflammation of the heart? That's correct. Yeah. And so, that would have occurred uh, within that three-year range? or was, it, was there a fallout time frame on that? How did that work? Well, it, uh, it it occurs usually within weeks of the uh, of the, the vaccination. However, uh, virtually all other forms of car- of myocarditis that we're familiar with uh, leave permanent damage on on the heart, and uh, it can. Uh, I, I think that for non COVID uh, myocarditis, non non COVID vaccine myocarditis, it's uh, about half of the patients who have it uh, will, will die within about five years. So, I mean, it, it, myocarditis is, is a very serious illness. Uh, there are many who are saying, well, this this kind of myocarditis is different. Uh, and so we, we don't think it's going to be that bad. And, and, you know, you could get over it. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, ho- we're all hoping that that's the case, that, you know, it, uh, that it may produce some temporary inflammation and, and uh, that the heart can recover from without uh, being permanently damaged. Uh, but we don't have enough time to know that yet. I'm Dr. Stephen A. Reed, uh, four years of experience and retired now here as a neurosurgeon. If you have any questions, I'm looking at the chat line as I'm listening to Dr. Reed. Uh, we're talking now about the controversial subject of COVID and um you know, what a whirlwind experience that was for this country. We won't know the effects of not only the medical effects of it, but economic effects, social, political effects. Um, you know, it's really quite something. And then, of course, the whole idea. I had a of these level four labs. I had a friend once upon a time who was a uh, research physician, and um, he worked exclusively in level four labs. And... I always remember, I had him out to my class. He came out to my research class at the college and talked. And it was an interesting discussion. They asked him, uh, back then AIDS was uh, the, the big big thing. I mean, that was, you know, scaring everybody and it was out. Nobody knew initially what it was. And and so they asked him if he had done any uh, <clears throat> research on AIDS. And he said, no, no, I don't, uh, I don't do any research on AIDS. And they said, why? He says, well, we have limited uh, resources and time and whatnot. AIDS is a virus that can be corrected by a change in human behavior. Uh, he said, I'm working on Ebola. <laughs> well, nobody in the room had heard anything about Ebola, you know, and he said, that's what I'm working on. And he says, if we get that virus out of the lab, we nuke the lab and seal it permanently. Uh, that's how dangerous it is. And I've always remembered that conversation because I wonder the Wuhan lab and all that, did the virus get out? 
Did they nuke it? Did they seal it? What were they doing? I guess we'll never know. But that conversation stuck in my mind. Of course, the kids couldn't believe he said, oh, you mean you're not talking about HIV? And he said, no, no, that's not on the on the, on the totem pole of viruses. That's not one of our concerns. And that was always stuck in my mind. That was that was a moment of, of, of honest scientific truth. You know, I'm not going to use my limited resources. He also said that uh, he had been offered a job with Merck Pharmaceutical and had been called into a room by uh, the higher ups and said, you come to work for us and you'll retire a wealthy man. And he thought that was immoral. He told them, no, I don't want to come and work for you. And then he told the class, he said, if aspirin were invented today, it'd be one of the most expensive drugs you could get. (laughs) Quite a character, you know. And he, by the way, Steve, committed suicide. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful mind. Um. I, he got so frustrated with what he saw, what we're talking about with now. I just realized this as we're talking. Um, you know, it just wasn't something he could deal with. And and um, I remember talking to him about a week before he did that. And I never really, you know, I couldn't really tell that that was form, foremost on his mind. But the subjects he kept coming back to were pretty much unsolvable, you know, big things that he was seeing. He was particularly, we haven't talked about this yet, but he was particularly down on the pharmaceutical business. He thought those guys were some of the, some of the worst because they justified their expenses by saying they needed to charge for that drug for research and money they, to develop other drugs. Well, the, the largest criminal fine ever paid by any corporation was paid by Pfizer. That's that's recently, wasn't it? Uh, I I don't recall how how recently it was, but it you mm-hmm. know it was relatively recently. You know, so uh, they you know they're the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, pharmaceutical comes from Pharmacos, uh, but you know they they have a point. You know, they uh, it, it is a tremendous cost to uh, to bring a, a new medication to market and. Uh, they only have a limited period to, to make an exclusive profit off of it before it becomes a generic. So uh, they, they have some some valid points. And, and there's, you know, you can look at our quality of life, you know, uh, the, the availability of treatments for all these different maladies that we have. And so the pharmaceutical industry is, is I think, a, a net positive uh, for humanity. You know, there's no question that they, they, they bring a lot to life to make it better. You know, uh, however, I, I think there's nothing wrong with having a healthy skepticism uh, about their, their new products and, and to demand, you know, some kind of a track record, uh, especially before a medication is mandated. I mean, imagine what an incredible business model uh, you have if you can create a product that people are required by law to buy. You know, <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. just that talk about market distortions, you know, the, the, the market doesn't have a chance to evaluate it. You know, it's like, okay, you're forced to take it. Here it is. Go for it. Insurance is like that in many situations. And, uh, you know, now we've seen that, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals can be like that too. Just checking the chat line. We've got about four minutes left. You got anything you want to ask about? Let me take a look at it. 
as we scroll along here. Um, and anything we haven't covered, Steve, that you'd like to talk about in uh, four minutes? Well, I'd like to put in a plug for uh, Dr. Lifeline. Let's do uh, that. Let's do that. I, I uh, started a uh, nonprofit uh, corporation called Dr. Lifeline, whose sole purpose is the prevention of physician suicides. And uh, I, I think we briefly touched on the point of how common it is and what a problem it is. Over the course of my, my career, I have personally known seven physicians who died deaths of despair, who took their own lives. Uh, and I think if you talk to any doctor, that doctor will know someone, some other physician who has taken their life. And uh, when you think about it, if we're having more than 400 doctors a year in this country taking their lives, uh, imagine how many patients then have suddenly lost their doctor and need to find a new one. And then there's the issue of suicide contagion. What does it do to those doctors' patients, many of whom may be depressed or potentially suicidal, if their doctor takes his or her own life? This is a, a very serious issue, and it needs to be addressed. What I've learned is that most people are completely unaware of this as being a problem, and it's a big problem. So to, to learn more about this, please take a look at drlifeline, one word, dot org. And we can appreciate all the help we can get. Thank you for that. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Steve. And Dr. Stephen A. Reed, retired, 40 years experience as a neurosurgeon and has started DrLifeline.org uh, for this business of uh, helping us understand the kind of tension-filled, I guess it's not overstating it, practice of the medical profession and what has been affecting it and uh, negatively and positively. I, I don't know if we covered too many of the positive things. I, I feel that on the positive side, we've got some amazing equipment that we use. You know, we do heart transplants and we, uh, you know, have these machines that look inside our bodies. And um, there are some amazing things that we're able to do um, that uh, we really didn't get around to talking about. Maybe that's another show someday. But uh, that's kind of remarkable. And, and the things that you can do. And I know the things that you have done working on the mind, the brain, uh, has been some of the most um, delicate of all, I suppose, things you've done. Well, tune in tomorrow. We'll have Ted Yoho with us tomorrow talking about wherever Ted is. He's talked to us from Mongolia, and then he talked to us from Seoul, South Korea. And I think he's back home now, but he always tunes in on Wednesday. So uh, don't miss that. And uh, we'll have some more discussions for you this week on the Ward Scott Files. Hopefully they're educational and interesting. Have a great day and thank you, Steve. Warhol Command Center out.